0: Welcome to the Art First Interiors podcast, brought to you by Curious Egg. I'm Lorraine Erin, an artist who designs interiors. I'm passionate about the way art can change our lives and improve our home environments. And I love interiors with art at their soul. Here on the Art First Interiors podcast, I talk to like-minded creative people, including fellow artists, interior designers, and homemakers, exploring how art affects their lives, the places they live, and the spaces they create. Join me to discover the power of art to transform your home. shamanic journeys deep into the subconscious to protect a mass of silver during a plague. In this episode, I chat to artist Jill Walton about some of the intriguing processes and techniques that she uses in making her work. We discuss how she uses sacred geometry to compose paintings and hidden symbolism to build stories that lead the viewer's eye through her paintings. Jill talks about the challenges of balancing motherhood with being an artist and how COVID-19 has changed her approach to her work. So, Jill, welcome. Um, I thought it would be kind of interesting if you could uh, tell us a little bit about your background and just more about the person behind the artist. Um, So, I live in the Scottish Borders
1: countryside in a wooden eco house with my two dogs, two cats and up until very recently, my two boys. A bit like Noah's Ark here. (laughs) (laughs) A full house. Yeah, (laughs) and um, so I've been in Scotland for about 20 years. Before that, I did a degree in sculpture in Gloucestershire, at Cheltenham. Um, And I was a sculptor for quite a long time until I had those two boys, actually, and then it became much easier to paint. Yeah, so it was
0: actually a natural transition into painting.
1: That's right, yes easier to put down than um, a big uh, sculpture tends to have a lot of processes involved and once you start those processes it's quite well the kind of sculpture I did was very process and, and once you start those processes it's very difficult to put it down where it's quite easy to put a paintbrush down yes. but I absolutely fell in love with painting when I started it and even though I still love sculpture and do it from time to time I am definitely a painter now
0: Gosh, that's that's so interesting, and I would and definitely like to uh, come back to the the sculpture yeah. um, side of things because that's that's particularly interesting to me, of course. Um, but yeah. just just on, I mean, where did your uh, the whole interest in art and, and start it as an artist? I think people are always interested to to know how do you know you can be. Everybody does a little bit of art when they're younger at school, but so many people don't continue. And what makes an artist become an artist? Uh, I think it's interesting to know what when that starts and, and how you continue with it.
1: Yes. Um, well, I did do a lot at school, but my family were not uh, arty at all. They really didn't understand. When I wanted to go to art college, they really didn't understand it at all. But um, it, uh, it was just... Ha- it's hard to describe how it started. It was just always there. Um, I do have a very famous ancestor that was an artist. Oh. He, yeah. He he was called Roger Fenton, and uh, he was a painter turned photographer when photography came into being in Victorian times. Uh And he was actually the first ever war photographer. Gosh. Um, But he was never mentioned in my household. Like I say, they had no interest in art at all. And it was only when I was at art college in an art history lecture that his name popped up uh, because he was in a group with other photographers and uh, they had a a key exhibition at the time. It was called Painting is Dead, ironically. Uh, (laughs) Gosh.
0: They were the rebels. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and I, must, I jumped out of my seat. I had no idea that okay. this man that my grandmother had mentioned in passing was as famous and important as he was. Um, so, where did it come from? Probably in my far distant DNA. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
0: I've, <laughs> I've it's been, been there glad. all this. And and so did yeah. you not? Did you not have any of his work in the house? I mean, did did nobody? That's incredible, no, isn't it? Good great, yes. <laughs> you never uh, knew secrets uncovered uh-huh. and yeah. and so the the process so did you go to art school or did you how did how did it develop your skills i um
1: I didn't go to foundation co- uh, college straight away I actually had a, a wee job working in a dog kennel obviously he love animals always have yeah um but uh uh, but it it just oh, it just kept niggling away at me, and um, my old art school art teacher was very supportive, and he encouraged me to go and um, put in the application for art college, which I did, much to my dad's absolute dismay. Yeah, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh no, she's done it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I did. I went to
1: foundation college, and then from there I applied to do a degree. Uh, and uh, went to Cheltenham to do my degree there and uh, that was just that was 30 years ago actually and um, yeah, yeah
0: um, and uh, it's been my life ever since. And so you know what wor- have you always worked at home and you set up with a studio at home or how have you been in an I, artist um, sort of group studio? Uh, I've been
1: in artist groups I've been in um for uh, most of the time, I was in a there was an art center in Cheltenham called the Axiom Center for Contemporary Arts, and I had my studio in there. Um, and uh, that was fantastic being surrounded by other contemporary artists and lots of exhibitions going on all the time. But then I had children, yeah, <laughs> I love my children, and I would. Uh, <laughs> obviously obviously. (laughs) it wouldn't change a thing but you do have to make huge sacrifices when it happens
0: one of those was uh, giving up my studio yeah the the, dynamics change don't they I suppose they just you know get up when you want, going into the studio, working as late as you want, you can't really do that when you have small people around so um, yeah that's understandable so so is that when you went to your you got your own studio at that point um, well, we moved up to Scotland when, the, when
1: I had babies and um, from then on it was always studio at home and yeah. looking after the children at home. My children had um, learning difficulties and so I had to homeschool them so that was a big chunk out of my Gosh, my yeah, that's
0: career. tough actually yeah. to be doing that and be able to still have energy to have um to be creative, I think is yes. that's quite a challenge. Yeah, yes. incredible. And, and so, I, you, I mean, in terms of your sort of creative process, how did that change or develop during that time? And um, well, as I said, I took
1: up painting when the boys were little, um, and that is a continuous learning and development. Um, all the time through this process, I've always been a teacher of some kind. I've always taught in, uh, I used to teach in, on foundation courses, uh, and I teach adults and I work alongside an exhibition program, uh, in, in Berwickshire. Mm-hmm. And so I deliver workshops based on whatever is coming to, to the gallery at that time. And, um, so, I do a lot of research on um, and I, not just research. I always have done a lot of research into yes. artists from the past. And that really informs what I do. And that means that I'm always developing my process. The process is always changing. It's always being influenced by what I'm learning from those great masters. We have a fantastic gallery in, in uh, Berwick near where I live, um, that has recently had exhibitions of Turner, the Scottish colourists, we've got the Glasgow boys and girls. Oh, yeah. Um, so great artists. And I get to go and do all this, fun. you know, I get to talk to experts in their field about about these amazing paintings and it's wonderful and that does feed very much into what I do. So the yeah. paintings that you have at the minute that um, inspired by the Peking Opera.
0: Yes,
1: yeah. They're wonderful. I was actually, I was actually researching the Scottish Colourists. Now you wouldn't think there was a link, would you, between uh, the the China Girl and uh, the Scottish Colourists? But their way of painting, they um, they didn't use any earthy colours. They used just very bright primary colours. And they were very um and to give it structure they would use very strong black outlines. And so so that really fed into uh
0: the paintings that I did for you. And and I think I, you can really see that. Did. I mean, they're really striking those paintings, and I think um you know, painting goes through changes that are trends, that are waves, that are movements, that are things that come back round again. But I think that kind of bright colour, but yet almost a slight traditional sort of um, application of the paint, um, you don't see it so often. And I think, um, you know, there's something so striking about the colours at the opposite end of the spectrum, so, you know, the blues and the yellows, and it's, you know, quite bold for something that's quite a gentle subject matter. Um and I think you've spoken about that before about how you use colour wheel and, and opposite colours. Tell yes. me more about that. Um
1: the those uh colour opposites, so blue and orange, purple and yellow, red and green. Um I I do like using that in the paintings. And I I tend to use a very limited colour palette. My paintings are incredibly colourful. But I usually only have about five colours on the palette yep. at any one time. And that helps you to keep that real vibrancy of the colour. Mm. Uh, it helps you to, you know, those colours really work with each other within the picture. And and every colour you use really just sings out. And yes. if you just keep it very simple, keep it to those opposites
0: yeah but I think um, the singing really comes across you and you've mentioned that before how to make you know one sort of bounces off the other, and they really kind of um work together um to kind of create that kind of striking effect and you know what about the kind of um you know you're, you've talked a little bit about your inspiration your influences you know it's it's really interesting that you you know we, we all art school kind of get we sort of hop skip and jump through. Sort of the old masters, and yeah, we learn a bit. And so many people, you know, and, and I know I probably did that myself. You think, well, that's great. And then you go off and do something, that, you know, really contemporary, and you kind of almost forget those ancient sort of skills that people have built up through the years. And I find it fascinating that you've taken the time to really explore them and come up with your sort of your own interpretation of that. Yes. Yes. I've been um, looking, recently
1: I was looking, well, Recently, before COVID, and that seems like a whole lifetime ago now. But <laughs> I was looking a lot at uh, Baroque painting, yes. um, Baroque portraiture, and um, painters like Van Dyck, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the symbolism and the richness of those paintings. Yes. There, there are a lot in the um, Scottish, in the Portrait Gallery in uh, in Scotland. Yes, in Edinburgh, and. There's such um, a presence about these faces and and the 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 women that were painted 500 years ago now.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I brought I bring those up to date. I use those as sort of basis for some of the paintings. Bring them up to date by. Using um, some of the techniques of the time, but techniques that I use myself with a slightly brighter color palette. Um, compositional rules, like using the Fibonacci spiral to get the composition yes. right. But then I'll throw in things that come out of dreams. Um, so so those uh, Baroque paintings at the time were heavily laden with the symbolism at the time. Mm. Such So if there was a dog in the painting, that would symbolize faithfulness. But I sort of change it around and put in my own sort of um, Jungian archetypal symbolisms. Um, So they'll have rings with eyes on them. They'll have one of them's got a cricket on her shoulder, which Mm. is sort of like a little voice of clever wisdom. That, that sort of thing. Yes,
0: yeah, so you sort of discover, I mean, I would love that about your painting is, is they, they're so striking anyway when you approach them and then as you look more, you you find in amongst the sort of folds and layers of the dresses, you find these really beautiful symbols and it just makes you wonder more about the story behind the piece and that kind of narrative. And I think you've mentioned that before, that's what you find in the Baroque paintings, the, the kind of strong narrative and also that kind of very theatrical sort of setting where they put people with this very dramatic backdrop and the the kind of symbolism and um, and you've kind of carried that through is, is it is that quite important to have that sort of theater in your work as well i that the, the narrative
1: quality yeah the, mm. the theatrical quality of it is I am very drawn to that I am drawn to paintings that look like they have stories um but what i try not to do is impose a story uh just one narrative on my paintings i like to put in those archetypal symbols um that mean something can be the same or different to everybody yeah so that people can can impose their own stories on these and have their own ideas about what it means. The meanings are are not set in stone. They yes. are open to interpretation by yes. whoever's looking
0: at them. And, and I think it that's interesting because you, you, you sort of mentioned the, um, you know, you talked about the dreams and... Um, I did want to go back to, because you, you mentioned a particular uh, experience you had with the, the the shaman, and you have to, we've oh. got to hear this, um, <laughs> and and yes. at the risk of us going um, all arty and everyone, I think that it's really important to kind of really describe what that experience was and, and, and how it actually affected your work, because I find it fascinating.
1: So I have a friend who was training to be a shaman. Wow. I didn't, even know, yeah, I didn't even know sh- shamanic schools existed, but they do. There's one in Scotland even. Wow. And uh, I, she's a very lovely dear friend, and I must admit I was quite sceptical at first, but she wanted to use me as a guinea pig, and I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> what have I got to lose? <laughs> but it was the most amazing experience, I have to say. Gosh. it, um, uh, it it involves drumming and the drumming um, it doesn't hypnotize you but it 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 means that your brain waves mimic a hypnotic state uh, and you become you become very deeply relaxed which is so lovely mm-hmm. and then you you start off with an intention which can be to find your garden of souls, for example, which is one of my intentions. So you have to walk down to a place and
0: look for this place, which is like a garden of Eden. or um, is, is that one in the same thing? So, I mean, I have to be honest, it wouldn't occur to me to go into it looking for a garden of souls. What does that sort of mean? I mean, is, is that what it means, a garden of Eden?
1: It's a place that is untainted by any um, any darkness or okay. bad feelings or it's a place. So, so I suppose like God, the Garden of Eden was, Yes, I think it, that exists in a few different co- cultures under different names, different guises, okay. but it's a sort of place of purity mm-hmm. uh, within you as you were when you were born that's untainted by any sadness or tragedy or or
0: just harm
1: yeah. and so you go and you're finding that place within yourself and um, as so you sort of take a journey it's called a shamanic journey because you walk and you travel to this place but you're actually going deep into your subconscious mm-hmm. um, and you meet animals or people along the way and um, I probably because I'm an artist mine was incredibly visually rich it's not these these journeys they're not like um, hallucinations they are just like a very vivid day- daydream really
0: yes.
1: And uh, I was talking through the process. And uh, so these things do just pop into your head as you're going on this journey. And uh, the images were so very, very rich and colourful and beautiful. And it would have been a shame not to use them in the paintings. Really, because it, yeah. it's, an, it's an absolute gift to an artist to have this really rich visual symbolism that comes from deep in your subconscious that you can easily translate into uh, a painting. So, yes, a lot of the animals, creatures
0: in the paintings come from these these journeys. Uh, and that's so incredible. So when you sort of came out of that, um, what would you call it? Would you call it a trance? Would you call it a kind of just a different state of consciousness I suppose um but when you're just, not scrambling you to get the sketchbook get and... <laughs> 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 quick let me write down all my ideas I mean how did you did, did they just stay in your mind after that oh yes for a long time Gosh. yes and yes. they were incredible because I did see some of the paintings that were the results of that and they just I mean you could see it just you couldn't have kind of just Thought those things up out the blue, you know. You but yet they made so much sense in a way. that you know, you had these beautiful birds um, wound around this female figure with her and the jewelry and the pattern and the dress, and it just seemed to all kind of make sense. And yet, no, you would never ever come up with that in your wildest <laughs> dreams. But well, you did. <laughs> but you know, it, they were just so beautiful. And and it's interesting. I mean, I suppose if we people have talked about those kind of old altered. Kind of consciousness. Um, in the sixties, they took drugs to do it, you know, and, and kind of reaching parts say, of I your. No, no drugs were involved. In I was say, just <laughs> for the record, but you know, people have talked about that that they've used various methods, dubious or not, to reach different parts of their mind to kind of unlock that creativity. And um, I mean, is it something you would do again? Do you think that it wouldn't be quite as vivid next time because you're almost expecting something? I think it would be different. I think it would be
1: as vivid, but it would be different because I'm in a different place now than I was then. But what it did was really um, trigger... all. One of the hardest things for an an artist is to come up with a visual language. Yeah. And that was uh, my own visual language delivered on a plate. And that those paintings then led to other paintings that led to, you know, the language, your vocabulary just develops. Yes. So um, I think, yeah, I would do it again. It would feed into it again. Um,
0: But it was a lovely process. Oh, yeah, no, it sounds incredible. (laughs) So, I mean, you've continued to work on your, you know, you work a prolific worker and um, you know you can see that uh you work across a variety of mediums the the sculpture i wanted to come back to because that's interesting to me my background is in sculpture too and we've talked about that and just i mean do you miss the sort of the kind of materiality of sculpture getting your hands in and creating solids from liquids and i mean i i love the whole kind of the very physical process of that, is that something you miss or do you feel you've taken some of that into your, your painting work?
1: There's definitely a crossover. Um, there is um, definitely, when, when I'm painting, I'm adding, I, I often take away, I scrape things off and uh, rub things back. So I'm conti- continually adding and taking away. Just I used to model with clay when I was sculpting yeah. and, and so there are definite crossovers, and with the subject matter too there'd be crossovers um, I have to say that it's always been people for me, yeah uh, figures have always been my main source of uh, inspiration, that humanity yeah um, so th- there are definitely crossovers in the two ways of working and I do miss sculpture yeah and I will go back to it at some point it's not I haven't ruled it out completely I'm so busy I've got so many paintings to get out and I'm so busy with the painting at the minute but the other thing is that at the moment I am actually in the smallest studio space I've ever had in my whole really? career, I, I am a messy worker.
0: <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> I it's hellish isn't it?
1: <laughs> and I think I would have to have a separate studio for the sculpture at the minute.
0: Yeah. So, uh, yes, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I have huge intentions. I mean, we've been obviously um, we set up Curious Egg uh, nearly five years ago, and I just haven't been able to get back to making sense, but. The whole point of it was so that I could do that and actually incorporate that into the business too. And I'm desperate to set up a sculpture studio, um, just in even in a, a sort of shed in the garden, trans, you know, could transform that. But you do need space. You need to have plenty of space for sculpture. And I think you all were similar to me in some of your techniques. We did, um, I think I was saying solids into liquids there, but liquids into solids, you know, casting, mould making... And working with plaster, modeling with clay, I mean I miss that so much, and I think just but it does it is messy It's not the kind of thing you really want lying around your house so it's um, messy and it's there
1: is a process that um there is a time involved in that yes, process um, absolutely you can't uh just have things in put things to one side and leave them because. Even if it's a clay piece, they can they can go hard if you're yeah. not looking
0: after it properly. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there's they, probably more considerations with that than you can sit a canvas to the side and you know it's fine and to leave it there you for a can while. Leave
1: it for years if you want. To. Yeah, you come back. yeah, you can't do that with sculpture. So they
0: take up a physical space and they take up a space in time too. The sculptures. Yeah, yeah absolutely well we'll celebrate we'll have a celebration party when we both get back to sculpture <laughs> some form <laughs> um and then lastly just on that uh on, on the sort of techniques um because i i was very interested when you talked about a uh, fibonacci spiral and that's also something that's very much translates into design and even interiors you know we Um, when you're sort of planning a room, you have the kind of focal point and then the things that happen around it and that space and how things are balanced in proportions. And I just kind of wanted to know how that kind of – because for people that don't know what we're talking about, maybe just talking a little bit more about that that kind of concept. Well,
1: even if you don't know anything about Fibonacci spirals or the golden mean, golden rule – Um, It's got lots of different uh, names. You probably already use it when you're laying out an interior or taking a photograph. It's just, I think it was the ancient Greeks that um, they, they, art and maths were together in the ancient Greeks. They didn't separate, separate out art and maths. And they came up with a mathematical formula for what was the most pleasing aesthetic. And they applied it to faces, so those beautiful Greek statues, their faces. So with the Fibonacci sequence, if you know anything about maths at all, you'll know that, or if you've read the Da Vinci Code, for example. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't, but I know what you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> you add the previous number to to the, the next one. So it, it, uh, yes. one and two makes three, two and three make five. Well... So if you take three and five, when you're clustering um, objects on a mantel shelf, or when you're gardening and you're planting plants together, they work best in groups of three or five. Yeah. And so it's the same with a painting if you If you divide a painting into uh, two-fifths and
0: three-fifths or three-eighths and five-eighths.: Yes, it's just it works better. And I think it's so great that you've kind of explained that because you hear so often here in interior designers saying, look, I don't know why, but it just works in threes. And 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 to actually hear that there was a kind of formula for that. And it's almost good not to know it because you're right, it just works. You know, your eye knows that you know odd numbers work better in in balance when you're decorating. But um, there is actually a kind of theory behind it. So, um, it and artists quite, throughout time
1: have used it. You know, Da Vinci and onwards have used yeah. uh, have used this, whether knowingly or unknowingly. So, yes,
0: yeah. yeah, it's so interesting. Um, and so you've you've had a lot of experiences as an artist, and I think it's always um, interesting for young artists who are starting out to hear um, just how your kind of life has progressed you know what are the challenges you faced I mean obviously one of them would be motherhood and balancing that between your work um so just you know how you'd outline the kind of main challenges um from then and also now that you face as an artist well it's um
1: it's not an easy career choice (laughs) um it's always a juggling um you need a lot of time to dedicate to the work. It takes a lot of headspace. Um, so obviously, mm. motherhood with time and headspace—that's that—they don't go well together. Yeah, uh, but uh, my that's children are grown up now, yeah. And so I get more time to dedicate to that. But but then there's also that juggling with. Um, uh just financially it's it it's not an easy way to make a living and so most artists have to do something else to to get some income in yep um i'm lucky now that i sell enough paintings to make a living from that uh but it's taken a long
0: time to get to that
1: point yes yes um, and I think
0: I think that those are two sure. really those just those two things that you brought up about the headspace I think is what especially people who are not artists or who have not much knowledge of the creative process, just to understand how much headspace is required. you know I used to um get so frustrated working in public art commissions where they would give a tiny budget for the research and an idea um. Yeah you know, in a competition where that's where all the thought is when you're trying to come up with the concept and the research. And they didn't realise you can't just pop these things out if it's to be of any quality. Yes. And there's so so much that you do thats that doesn't work. Yeah, there's, exactly. It's uh, trial and error too.
1: Yes. and And especially if your work's evolving all the time, you make so many mistakes or work that just, that you wouldn't put out into
0: a gallery. Or, yeah, so you're not um, paid for it. It's, it's, it's kind of unpaid work that you have to go through to get to the, the piece that's going to make it for you. That's right, yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, and it's concentration. I know from teaching um, from teaching workshops, if I do an all-day workshop, people are absolutely exhausted by the end of the day. All they can yeah. do is go and lie on the sofa and have yeah. their partner... <laughs> Yes. feed them something because it's a really exhausting. <laughs> you
0: know? it, it's true. I mean, gosh, the, the, the students and the teachers. I remember teaching, and you'd literally have to go home and lie down with tea bags on your eyes just to recover. I mean, maybe a gin on the side too, but
1: <laughs> you, know,
0: you t- It took everything out of you. Yes,
1: yeah. the concentration, such intense concentration for prolonged periods of time. Yes,
0: yeah. And using Definitely. all your senses as well. I think it's, you know, you're not just typing and thinking, you're you're taking in everything, you're actually thinking beyond what's in front of you and constructing ideas and critiquing ideas. And, yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting to understand how physically exhausting creativity is. It's great and you get the thrills, but it, it does require a lot of effort and, and that's unseen. I think that's what the biggest part of it is, it's unseen. Yes, yes <laughs> <laughs> damn it they don't understand <laughs> they don't understand
1: <laughs> it's, and it's a job as well yeah so on top of all of that it's a business and you have the admin and the
0: marketing and all of that yeah yep, you've got and to be that. the business person too yeah and I, and I think that's very tough for for youngsters coming out that and and why we tried to do a wee bit of mentoring for for artists coming out of art school just because even now and it was always a problem and I think I've said it in past podcasts is, is just the um, gap in professional training at art school they, they touch on it but and some of it to be fair you you can't really know till you're out there but I I still think um, that they could build in a bit more of it certainly on some of the courses. Um, yeah. That they do, because they just come out so green and not know where to start that it, you know it makes things extra tough that's right it's a huge learning curve it
1: really yeah. is yes, accounts, that sort of thing, oh yeah. I
0: know, I know horrible <laughs> spreadsheets. I cry if I go on a spreadsheet, honestly, hideousness, <laughs> but we've had to sort of yeah it's it's one of the necessary evils um so obviously we're in this crazy situation just now with the coronavirus and this this year has um was by but um i mean how has that affected your work you know and your your way of working and and uh,
1: massively uh it really did um i think like most people i spent at least a week or two in shock and horror because all 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 my income, all my exhibitions that I had planned, art fairs I had planned, teaching that I had planned, everything stopped like that. So it was, it, yes, was a, it was a quite, but just for it was for the rest of the world, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Was so and I didn't think that I'd be able to paint at all. But, um, like most situations, art and cre- creativity is how I process it's how I work through yeah um so I did get back into the studio but I couldn't work on what I was working on before those big baroque opulent things full of bling and symbols and color just didn't seem right at all so I started to do some very small drawings some black and white drawings that were they were smaller, they were simpler, they were just people and just emotion. It mm-hmm. was people and trying to convey some of the emotions that people were feeling in quarantine and in lockdown, those feelings of being in a in a smaller you know confined in a smaller space yeah and that wasn't all bad I'm sure I'm not alone that there were some really nice things about yeah absolutely about that so
0: but yeah. that that's what I
1: and, and I think also, that's
0: so so interesting because it, it it happened naturally and yet it makes so much sense because essentially our lives were sort of distilled down, they were simplified into key elements and it was about people and it was about emotion and that's exactly the two things we were faced with during that time where, yeah. you know, normally we're... I mean, I remember the first time we went out for a walk and, you know, Roddy was saying, everything seems so colourful and vibrant and when we went, we, we sort of passed by a river and he said, it's it just everything seems so... because we hadn't seen it in so long and... I mean, it sounds, you know, uh, kind of uh, exaggerated, but, well, it, it was. I mean, kind of, your environment becomes exaggerated. So when that's taken away, I mean, it almost makes sense for you to have kind of, I mean, your work's so colourful to then go into black and white. Um, it's just so interesting, but it makes absolute sense. And yet they're so powerful, the works too. They're gentle, but powerful.
1: Mm, yes.
0: And, and yes. tell me about the materials and the process, because that's also was a transition. It wasn't painting. You, were, you went into drawing. And, I went um, into drawing. I went back to a pencil. Yeah, so on.
1: they are graphite on paper. So it's not just pencil. I uh, used um, a thing called art graph, which is graphite powder, water-soluble graphite powder. And you get much more of a blackness mm. with that. Um, so their pencil, their graphite powder and beeswax um, mixed in with the, the pencil gives uh, a bit more sort of fleshiness to the pencil, if that makes any sense at all. And uh, I was I was also lo- thinking about subconsciously, probably thinking about um, uh, icons from the Middle Ages. At the time that, that came after the, the Black Death, the Great Plague, um, and so they took on that sort of scale, that sort of those sorts of shapes of the icons that within the rectangular format. And um, in icons, they used a lot of gold leaf. Well, I used silver on mine, so I added silver leaf onto them. And the, uh, the story goes that during the Black Death, the the, um, the wealthy didn't get the plague because they ate off silver platters. And silver, yeah, silver's been known since the Greek times for its antimicrobial properties.
0: Oh, so okay.
1: they gave my faces these there but not quite there silver masks sort of healing, protecting masks, especially as we've all
0: got to wear masks now. It's sensible. They're really beautiful pieces you've done. Um, And actually that leads us on nicely to our plans without going too much detail because we're planning a show in November, um, which also kind of captures your experiences and other artists' experiences of this um, lockdown. And um, I think that'll be really exciting. That's going to stem from that. Similar sort of work in similar medium. Yes, the the graphite and beeswax and silver pieces that yes. I'm in the process of making for you now. Absolutely, I'm very excited about it. Um, <laughs> I think those those materials are beautiful as well. mean ancient beeswax, they're all quite ancient materials. And I think
1: yes.
0: you know we've kind of all had a bit of a, a, a kind of step back and look at our lives, and we're trying to simplify things and. Um, kind of look back to what we've lost, and I think there's so much symbolism in that. That um, I think you know it's going to be a really interesting show um, all round. So, well, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, Jill. As always, we could just talk all day. <laughs> and thanks so much for coming on and and um, telling us about your work and uh, kind of sharing your experiences. Um, it's been great. Thanks. Thank you. It's been great fun. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye thank you for listening to this episode of the art first interiors podcast i hope you enjoyed it and if so i'd really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review if you'd like to hear more please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts you can also find me on Instagram at Curio Egg for more art-first interiors chat and inspiration.